That being said, how about we all stand? Uh, why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of First Peter chapter 4. Uh, we are getting back into the series that we had started, um, I don't know, year ago, year and a half ago. So we're continuing this uh, course. So if you guys don't have Bibles, raise your hand. We have some ushers. I would love to get you a Bible. We're going to be picking up at verse uh, 1, chapter 4. I'm going to read through the next six verses. Just FYI, this is going to be a uh, one sermon in two parts uh, today as well as next week. Um, so if you uh, miss next week, make sure you you don't miss next week. Just show up um, or listen to it on our podcast. So I'm going to read uh, scripture, listen to what uh, the apostle Peter has to say. He's got some good stuff to share with us. So listen to what he says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, But with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they end up maligning you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for it is the gospel. For this reason, the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way of the people, um, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. And this is the word of God. I'm going to pray, and then we'll try to make sense of what we just read. Because some of you are like, what world are you talking about? I'll try to answer that. Jesus, thank you for our time here. Uh, we thank you for your word that's inspired, that gives us direction and wisdom and guidance. And we need it here this morning more than anything. Because, God, we need wisdom. We want to live right. We want to live well. We want to live good. And so, God, we look to you as the author of all of this. And right now, Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to be able to see, give us hearts that are quick and able to perceive what the Spirit has to say to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? Um, So just a real quick intro. Again, if you've been with us through this series on Peter, um, you're already in familiar with all of this, but if you haven't, this is kind of a quick little synopsis. Next slide, kind of give you a little bit of a uh, background. So Peter obviously is writing to a group of Christians that are facing uh, incredible amounts of pressure uh, from within the surrounding culture and society at large around them. His big aim is to really try to encourage them. Like, keep going. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't capitulate. Don't compromise. Don't become filled with despair. Just stay focused on Jesus. Um, run with endurance, really, to use other language. The race is before you. Uh, yeah, culture is shifting. Yes, culture is hardcore. Yes, culture um, oftentimes presents radical challenges to us. But that's, that's not new. That shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't be surprising to us. Again, this is why I would say that if you're a Christian, don't get so embroiled in culture wars. Does that mean that we should be silent on things that need to be spoken? No, absolutely. Speak forth boldly. Uh, have spine, have backbone, but at the end of the day, don't lose yourself. Don't lose your mind. Don't lose the testimony of the gospel by simply addressing uh, momentary cultural issues that will have always been here, will always be here for years to come. Maintain the testimony 
of Jesus. And I think this is exactly what Peter's saying. This is one of the reasons why we've been saying this is such an important book for us to really tap into the base note of wisdom that's here for us. So uh, with that being said, one of the things that I really want to focus on in the text that I think Peter kind of brings for bring, brings forth in terms of like a contrast for us to pay attention to. And I'll just kind of describe it this way. I think he points out for us two different ways for us to live. So um, on the one hand, he describes it as the way of faith. On the other hand, he describes it, those that are way of the Gentiles. And again, just Gentiles is another way of saying those that are not in line with the, or in tune with the way of following Jesus. Um, and the fact is, is that if you really want to just simplify everything, this is, this is true throughout all history, even in today's day, that there are really only two ways to live. Now, again, I realize in our culture, we, we do not like binaries. We buck that. We fight that. We resist that. We bristle against that. We don't like binaries. We want things in so many forms of nuance. And again, there are many areas of nuance and gray gradations throughout life and whatnot we can focus on. But I think what Paul's, or Paul and Peter, New Testament writers, are really focusing on in terms of how to live, the way to truly live, there's really only two ways. And this is what I think Peter brings to the fore for us to really pause, to consider, to think about, and really even at the end of the day ask ourselves, where, where do we fit in? How do we associate with this? Uh, where do we ascribe? How, how are we taking our cues? Are we living according to the way that Peter is describing? Um, or are we finding ourselves swept up in an alternate current that uh, really leads to a place that's very distinct or distant from what I think our ultimate aims are. So with that being said, I want to just kind of give a uh, snapshot. This kind of gives a little bit of an outline, the, the ways in which I think Peter describes it. Um, I think he just describes it as the way of faith. Um, those that are faithful, those that follow Jesus, uh, we could derive the terminology like a believer and a non-believer. Again, um, the big idea behind this is that there's a lot of different ways in which I think New Testament writers will use terminology to describe the, these two different ways. Um, so, for example, again, you have the way of faith, which we could describe it as a believer versus a non-believer. Peter's going to tell us very clearly, uh, a believer is one, according to verse 2, who lives for the quote-unquote will of God. That's what a believer is. It's as simple as that. That doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're sinless. It doesn't mean that, you know, you've got it all figured out. It doesn't mean that you have some degree of certitude that causes you to walk around with bravado that you can do that. But the point is, which is not good, it's not healthy, it doesn't look like Jesus. But at the end of the day, the flip side of this is there is a way to live that's not consistent with that, which I think he would describe as they, in verse 2, they live for, quote unquote, human passions. We'll unpack that in just a moment. Human passions, what exactly does that mean? Again, I'm just going to give you a variety of other ways that this is not an exhaustive list, but these are just what I could think about when I was going through this. Um, some would describe this these two ways, these binary, as following Jesus and versus those that follow the way of the world. Some would describe the binary between walking in light versus those that would walk in darkness. Um, one would describe it as walking in the spirit or living according to the spirit of God. The other is living according to the flesh, the base natures of in, uh, just simple instinct and whatnot. Some would call it saint, sinner. Um, some would describe it, Jesus would describe it this way, building your house upon the foundation of rock versus building your house on the foundation of sand. Again, all I'm simply trying to say is that New Testament language or terminology to describe the two different ways of living it's according to these. And again, you can probably throw down a handful of other ones as well 
if I had more, a little bit more time uh, to exhaust this, but I don't. So what I want to also end on in terms of moving into the next rest of the teaching is uh, Terrence Malick actually has a way of describing it as the way of grace and the way of nature. If you're not familiar with Terrence Malick or even specifically, you don't even need to know about Terrence Malick. You should, though. But his movie, The Tree of Life, you, how many of you have watched this movie? I'm not going to say shame on the rest of you because I love you, and that's not good. It's not in line with the way. But you need to watch this movie. Do what you can tonight. Go home, watch this movie, buy it if you have to. I'm not not joking. It's literally the best movie over the past hundred years. Not joking. That's, all right? I'm not kidding on this. What's that? It's very trippy. It's very artistic. It's very, okay, if you're looking for, like, amazing, like, like explosions and people dying and losing limbs and blood, you will not like this movie. But if you like real life story, that's like grit and, and full of beauty and imagery and cinematography, beauty and all, you will absolutely love this. Okay. Point that I want to make is this, is, is he makes this distinction. Just, I'll just read what he says. He says, there are two ways to live through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. I wish I actually can show you this little clip. In fact, um, if you follow me on my Facebook, which I realize that a lot of you aren't even on Facebook. If you are on Facebook, just look me up, Brian Soup on my name, figure it out. And uh, I actually posted this morning a little two-minute video clip that, that literally is this entire line right here. It's worth the entire just like sermon just at some point today. Watch that. All right, I'm going to read it. There are two ways to live through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself. It accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked. It accepts insults and injuries. Nature only wants to please itself. It gets others to please it too. Likes to lord it over them. To have its own way, it finds reasons to be unhappy. When all the world is shining around it. I need some water. Can someone get me some water, please? Thank you. To have its own way, it finds reasons to be unhappy when the world is shining around it. And love is smiling through all things. Um, The big idea here is Terrence Malick just taps into this biblical narrative that there's really only two ways to live. He just simply describes it as the way of grace and the way of nature. Which is, again, if you remember that image of the graph, like it's, it's all the same. It's all the same. Two ways. This binary. And we're invited to really think about carefully what way we will live, what path we will adopt, what types of, uh, what narrative will inform how we live and how we think, how we act, how we treat other people. Thanks, Joel. <clears throat> I'm going to be one of those speakers that sometimes takes a break and drinks water, so. Thanks for enduring. <clears throat> you guys are living according to the way of grace. Appreciate that. Some of you are like, I'm not. Why is he doing that? Anyways, the way of uh, nature. Good job. Anyways, so what I want to do right now is I really want to just go into the text and let Peter kind of inform us. So again, like I said, this is like this one sermon over two weeks um, because I want to take each week really looking at the two variables and we only have time really to look at one um, to do justice for them. So I want to actually, first of all, look this week just at the way of nature. In other words, the way Terrence Malick describes it. Or you can say the way of the flesh or the way of the world or the way of darkness, however you want to describe it. The, the negative one, if you want to think of it that way. Um, what, is, what does that look like? And, and why is this even playing in the text? Because I think what Peter's suggesting here is he's talking to people that have been brought out of the darkness into light. He's saying, look, here's what you once were. 
Live in a new way. Live in a way that is in consistency with the way of, of grace. To live in a way that is informed and transformed and shaped by Jesus. Uh, yeah, the culture around us is strong. If you, again, if you think of the culture around us at large, today's world, God bless you, as a current, the current is strong. In some cases, it's in some areas of the country, in some places you may find yourself, it's stronger than others. And some of us, we have tendencies to kind of be poor, pulled into certain areas, torn into certain areas. And what I think Peter's saying is that as you are living as a follower of Jesus, seeking to be faithful to God, recognize that there are these currents that are consistently trying to pull you away from God to get you to compromise, to, to walk away from the light, to move towards the life of nature, the way of nature. So with that, I wanted to really just kind of point out, because I think Peter describes four different things that he identifies that will kind of point to what the way of nature looks like. And I really just want to focus on those things, and then we will wrap it up, um, and then we will set the stage for what we will look at next week, which will be what does the way of grace or the way of a follower of Jesus look like, and how does he encourage us? He gives us his information, which is, therefore, just as Christ gone through what he had gone through. Therefore, arm yourselves. So he has a lot to say to Christians. Say, arm yourselves. With, with what? That's we'll, we will get into next week. So the four things I really want to focus on as we jump into this next thing is we see that the way of nature is ultimately ruled by impulse or desire from within the world. In other words, this is contrasted with really no deep desire for God. No deep desire for God. So let me just read you a handful of examples of this, and then I'll kind of make some uh, comment on this. But the actual word that he uses here is, in verse 2, it says, they live for human passions. Again, just listen to the passage again. He describes it this way. They live for human passions. That word human passions is really important. It's the Greek word epithumia. It literally means an overdrive, a, a, like a lust or a longing or a deep passion that kind of uh, controls you within that moment. And the big idea is that people who simply live according to those deep impulses, live according to what nature is, and there's no other higher order or wisdom or source that informs and guides and dictates and directs, then what he's saying that you, you are living according to a lower power or source that will ultimately misguide from where you you actually think you're going to ultimately end up going. So let me give you a couple examples of how this, this very word plays into the New Testament. Uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 19. Jesus would say this, but the cares of this world, the word cares are the word epithumia. So he describes it this way. He says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things will enter in and choke out the word. And it proves unfruitful. This is the passage where Jesus talks about, you know, the, the parable of the soils, where a seed gets tossed on the soil, and then you have this variety of growth. Some uh, begin to grow into this incredible garden. Others don't. And this is that little section where Jesus basically says, look, in some cases, some people, they have these desires that overdrive them. So on the one hand, they may be confronted. So, for example, you might have been in a place in your life where you've heard about Jesus You've heard about the gospel, the good news, and it piques your curiosity for a little bit. You're like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I need to think about eternal things. Maybe I need to think more seriously, more constructively about what Jesus actually has to say about life and about who I am and how I'm surviving and what I'm doing and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, what ends up happening are these other desires, over-desires, epithumia, begin to guide you 
or distract you, if you want to use another way, away from what Jesus has to say. And before you know it, you that very word, the good stuff that Jesus deposited in your heart, begins to be choked out. You guys know what I'm talking about? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been to a church service where you're like, oh my gosh, Jesus is amazing. And before you even know it, the next day, you've already completely forgotten about everything that ever happened in that moment. That's epithumia. And it's not, it's, it, it just drives us away. It's, a, it's an overdrive that kind of kicks in. Uh, John chapter 8, verse uh, 44 says this. Jesus speaking to the religious leaders. Now, this is really powerful. This is what, listen to what he has to say. He says, you are of your father, the devil. He's speaking to the religious leaders. These guys actually think that they are like inheritors of this life of God because they're religious. And that's really interesting. Jesus actually says, no, you're, you're actually not inheritors of your father who you think is Abraham, which is going to inherit all this good stuff. In reality, your father is not Abraham. It's another father, the father he describes as, as a devil. Listen to what he describes. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires, epithumia. So whatever the devil longs and has in terms of these base urges or instincts, that's, that's how you orient your life according to this. Now, how do you know that you are being influenced by these more base natures of humanity and of, of evil, really, if you want to think of it that way? Well, Jesus goes on to say, he was a murderer. From the very beginning, he goes on to say, there's no truth found in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character. So let me just, let me, let me put it as succinctly as clearly as I can. Wherever there's death and lies, just know that's the native language, not of God, not of the kingdom of heaven, but of, of evil. And, and when we orient our lives in such a way that those become sort of the currency, lying, death, canceling people, hating on people, calling other people out because we, we disdain them and their lifestyle and what they're... And again, religious people. Jesus is talking to religious people here. So before we even begin to look at the quote-unquote world, we have to first of all look at the, ourselves. If you are a religious person, you claim to follow Jesus, and you are very quick to mark out the tribe that you are going to now raise yourself up over and show disdain towards, just know this is exactly you who Jesus is talking to, first and foremost. And so what I'm suggesting to you is that these that are ruled by their base impulses and drives, or epithumia, are those that are in contrast to those that live according to the desire to do God's will. It's just, I'm, again, these are my words. I'm just, I'm just doing the best that I can to try to let Peter inform us in terms of these two different ways of Living. So number one, again, this idea, they rule by impulse or desires from this world. Um, Galatians chapter, there's a couple other great passages I want to read that I think are really important for us before I move on to the next one. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 24. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires, the epithumia of the flesh. So apparently what Paul is saying here is that even as a follower of Jesus, we still have epithumia. So don't think that somehow just because I'm a Christian now, like, I don't have strong desires that will misguide me, mislead me away from Jesus. No, they're still there. They're resident. But what Peter is suggesting that Paul is also clearly articulating is that as we walk in alignment with the kingdom of God and God's desires, God's will, what happens is it gives us power over these things. We begin to feed the desires of our spirit, what God wants to do. Verse 24, he goes on to say, For those who belong to Jesus, they've crucified the flesh and its passions and its desires. In other words, 
what it means to be a Christian. As simple as this. A Christian is one that says, what will be the base note that which guides, directs my life is not my desires. Not what comes natural to me. Not nature. But Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, I want, I want to be really clear about this. Because our world right now is really clearly trying to articulate that actually what and who and how and what you feel is the truest thing that is about you. And to withhold what is the most truest thing about you would be a horrible crime. It'd be a horrible thing to do. What I'm suggesting to you, the way of life is one that really at the end of the day says, no matter what base feelings or desires I may have or longings I may have, those are not always the promise to the path of life. There's sometimes I have to say no to some of these things because if I just indulge in them and let them overtake me and become basically a slave to those impulses and desires, those can take me into places that are very dark and destroyed, uh, destructive. Instead, the other way to live, which is what Peter's describing here, is to live according to the will of God. And at the end of the day, a Christian is one that looks at their desires, doesn't deny them, doesn't act as if they're not there, doesn't take them into consideration. A Christian is one that says, no, I know these things that are here that I feel deeply inside of my soul and my being. But ultimately, at the end of the day, my aim is to live according to the will of God. In some cases, that may mean to say no to whatever those base desires are, even if they're necessarily good in some cases. So the point that I would make is, number one, is these base desires are what are going to be defining those that are part of the way of nature. Lastly, Second Timothy, this is a really important one I'll read and move on to the next one. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, it says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching or good, solid Bible teaching. They will have itching ears for those who will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, epithumia. In other words, there's Peter, uh, uh, Paul is suggesting to Timothy, he says, there's going to come a point at some point in the history of the church where people don't want to hear what the Bible has to say or what God has to speak or the wisdom that comes from above. They want to hear what actually suits their desires. And they will go hunting and pecking and looking, searching for teachers that will give them exactly what they want. He goes on to say, he says, and they will run and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As you know, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. But Paul is suggesting to Timothy. But the point of the matter is, he's like, guys, look, at the end of the day, I don't know how else to describe this. That the way of grace is the one that says, God, your will. The way of nature says, I don't really care what your will is. I know what I want. I know what I'm longing for. I know what I deeply desire. That's epithumia. So you just have to think about that and consider where and how does that play into your life on a personal level? Second thing is it goes on to describe is that these people that live according to the way of nature are shocked and surprised by those who do not participate in their habits. I'm just going to read you um, what he goes on to describe in verses uh, 3 through 5. Let me read that in just a second here. Um, but the idea that he uses here, the shocked and surprised, um, it's Kind of this idea that they're, they're, they're blown away that you're, you just don't fit in. The, the word that's actually used there is a really tricky word to uh, translate directly into English. But the point of the matter is, is that it carries this idea of like shock. Like, are you kidding me? What? 
Why? Why? Why are you not doing X, Y, and Z or living according to this particular idea or ideology? Um, listen to how First Peter in verse, uh, verses 3 through 5, chapter 4, I'm going to read this to you out of the message because he kind of gives a little bit of a uh, nuanced flavor to this. I think it might be helpful. He says, you have already put, and he's speaking to those that are part of the way of grace, he says, you have already put in your time in that God-ignorant way of life, partying, Night after night, drunk, reckless, excessive. Now it's time to be done with it for good. Of course, your old friends don't understand why you don't join in with them anymore. Um, the ESV adds these little words that I think might be helpful as well, in case you're wanting another way of thinking about this. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And this is what's fascinating to me, that, that Peter's writing to a, a community of people that this was a lifestyle. They were not unfamiliar with orgies. Again, realize we have some young kids in the room. But the fact is, this is the stuff that he's saying. Is that look, at one point, you lived according to the culture. The culture was, you know, you show up in these bathhouses and you just participate. Orgies, it's just there. You take it. It's yours. Enjoy it. Live according to it. Live it up. Get drunk. Drink as much wine as you want. Celebrate Bacchus, the, 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 the you know, the... The, the deity over partying and festivities and so on and so forth. Just that's, that's who you are. That's how you live according to the culture. But he's saying that that's not who you are anymore. You've been rescued from that. That way of life, that lifestyle, does not ultimately lead to ends of productivity and health and goodness and, and beauty. At some point, it caves in on itself. At some point, it self-ignites. At some point, it becomes cannibalistic and it eats itself. At some point, it just has an end of destruction. And it's like, that's not who you are anymore. And just as you live according to the way of God, you've got to realize that there, those that are still within that world, that's kind of their, the world mentality, they will look at you in, in kind of a shock and awe. Like, what? Are you kidding me? How are you not doing this anymore? How, this is like what everybody does. Everybody lives this way. Everybody thinks this way. Every, everybody participates in whatever this is. And what Peter's saying is that you're going to get pushed back. Just know that. It will come. It's there. But at the end of the day, God has given us another way of living that he will empower us in ultimate end of life that goes way beyond that. Again, this is not for a Christian. This is where, again, I, I want to push back very clearly uh, carefully on Christians, because I think sometimes Christians can kind of get this mindset of like, well, look at, we're not doing what they're doing, and there's this sort of sense of judgmentalism and disdain. Guys, like, you're do- it, it, we have this propensity of doing the exact same thing that Peter's saying those that are part of the way of nature do towards those that are part of the way of grace. It's possible for those that are within the way of grace to look at those that are part of the way of nature with the same sense of disdain. And the point that I would make is that it shouldn't shock us. We shouldn't have to look around the world around us and be like, I can't believe that all this horrible stuff's going on. Guys, it's been going on forever. It's, it's, it's no different. 2,000 years from now, it's going to still be the same. It's all just going to be part of the metaverse at some point. It's all virtual. We're just going to be sitting around with Oculus on or some form of like just sitting in our own little pod or cell in some big system, just like the Matrix, and we will be enjoying life. But the fact of the matter is, I'm just joking, but the point of the matter is, and that's not a prophecy, but the point that I would make is this, is that it shouldn't shock us, man. It's part of the world in which we live in. The idea of like sitting around with shock and awe, I can't believe, is, is he's saying this is a, this is a characteristic trait that's, that's going to be leveled against you because you're living in a different way 
than what God has tracked out. And then the third thing that he describes, you can also add to this list, by the way, of sensuality, passions, orgies, drunken parties. You can also throw in there, if you want, hatred, racism, greed, gluttony. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a list of stuff that we can throw in there as well. But the point of the matter is, is that it's a, it's a different life that Jesus is, is not only rescuing us from, but rescuing us to live into. It's, it's very different. The third thing he describes is they will uh, malign you, that those people that are part of the, the way of nature, there will be this, this maligning. The, the word that's actually used there in verse 4 um, is blaspheme. They will, they will blaspheme you. They will speak harshly, critically, um, arrogantly, disdainfully uh, about you. And he's just saying that this is par for the course. It's, it's there. And again, this is why I would just say, if you are a follower of Jesus and you claim to walk in the light, and that's the terminology that we're consistently using. It's one of the reasons why I'm so deeply concerned sometimes about Christians and their usage of online social networking systems. Like, honestly, I, I, I sit back sometimes and I, and I, I actually just deleted this uh, group that I was a part of because it was so toxic. And, and, and they're all Christians. They're all Christians, part of the tribe that I grew up in. And, and they, they posted a comment about a particular pastor, and there's everybody in the comment section was just like, oh my gosh, just if, if this is what they're saying about this person, I know their character, and it's got a good character. Man, it's like these are, these are people that claim to be followers of Jesus, and yet it's so like, I just feel like I want to take a bath. I feel so frustrated. Like, this is not the heart of Jesus. This is the exact same attitude that Peter's saying as part of those that are part of the way of nature. Man, I think this is one of the reasons why I would say, man, for some of us, for some of us, not all of us, maybe for some of us, you need a social media break. Like, just take a break, pull back, pull off of it. Just give yourself three months off. You're welcome. And just, just read scripture, read the Psalms, read a good book about an author outside of the tribe that you belong to, maybe from the Orthodox Church or someone from like 5,500 years ago. I said not 5,000, 500 years ago. But find somebody that can just speak into your life the glorious goodness of the gospel, maybe from a different time era. Just learn, sit at their feet, read Fox's Book of Martyrs, discover other followers of Jesus that have lived the faith in other contexts that were hostile towards them, and they came out in the other end. Read the book of Revelation in one setting, without commentary, without left-behind series. Just read it in its context. It will blow your mind of the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. And then the last thing he describes is those that are part of the way of nature. Uh, they will ultimately have to give an account for their lives before God. And again, this is where it gets really interesting. Verse 5, he goes on to say, and they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. This is one of those things that we really don't like to talk about, especially a lot in modern-day churches. It's like we try to avoid these types of ideas of ultimate extreme moments where we come together and have to give an account. Like, look, at the end of the day, I don't think any of us like account having to give an account. Like, nobody, at the end of the day, we really deeply enjoy a sense of having some to give an account over our lives or how we spend our money. It's one of the reasons why I think we hate like tax days because it's like, oh my gosh, I'm reminded of how foolishly I spent my money and how much I didn't save and how much I spent on frivolous things. And uh, But at the, at the end of the day, that I think the thing that we have to take into consideration is that your life, my life, you only have one of them. And it's valuable who you are, 
matters. I want you to hear that today. You may have been brought up in this world and have been influenced by the myths of this world that maybe you don't really matter because you don't have a certain body type or maybe you don't really matter because you don't have a certain financial bracket that you're fitting in. Maybe you don't really matter because you don't own a house or you don't have a job or you didn't fully graduate from college yet or you still have all these student loans or maybe your marriage broke and it's not you had to get divorced or maybe you have whatever guilt or shame symptoms that you carry with you. What I want you to hear today You, as a human being, matter in the eyes of God. Your life has value. How you live your life matters. The choices you make matters. Viktor Frankl, I've quoted him multiple times before. He wrote a book called The Meaning of Life. And he describes that, he says, if if I had the power, if I had the ability, he was a, you know, he survived uh, from Nazi concentration camps, actually four of them. And he started a particular psychological therapy called Lagos Therapy. And he describes, he says, man, if I had the power, I would create on one end of the continent of America the Statue of Liberty. But on the other end, in San Francisco, I would put a big statue of responsibility. And his whole point is that with freedoms come responsibility. But the American myth today is there's freedoms, no responsibility. Just give me whatever it is that I want, and I will do anything I want, as I want, when I want, how I want, because that's how I feel. The way of nature. But at some point, that responsibility part, we think we can outflank it. But the fact is, is that we are all responsible. We are all accountable. There's God that gave you the very breath that you just took in. It's not to scare us. Again, I want to be really clear on this. I've heard way too many sermons in my life where pastors have taken this idea of a final judgment and weaponized it to try to use it as a means to terrorize you into a commitment in that moment so that at the end of the day, they can post on social media, we had 18 people give their life to Jesus. Wonderful. Did they really give their life to Jesus or did they just simply respond to your fear tactic? It's just me having inner dialogue. I still need therapy. But the point that I would make is this. I don't want to pull away from the fact that the scripture is really clear. Every one of us, we will stand before God. We will give an account of this one life that we have. Yeah, we've had freedoms. But at some point, responsibility will come into play, and we will have to think about carefully, critically, how our choices, have they led us onto a path whereby we receive grace and we're shaped by grace and remade by grace. And through grace, our, our hearts, our desires become strongly for the will of God. Or will we just continue on this path where we allow culture at large to do its shaping of us and our inner desires and our longings that are there and untapped and unreached and unclaimed. And in some cases, again, believing the myth and the cultural narratives around us saying, well, you are an oppressed human being and you need to tap into something that's beyond anything else and just go deep into your soul of who you are because that's where true life is found. At the end of the day, brothers and sisters, that myth will only lead to another form of enslavement to your own epithemia. Jesus offers an alternative. And listen to how this idea of Standing for God plays into the rest of the New Testament. Again, I'm just going to give you a couple for the sake of time, and I'm done. 
Acts chapter 17, verse 31 says, God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, obviously Jesus. Romans chapter 14, verses 11 through 12, Paul would write this. And again, he's tapping into an ancient Old Testament biblical literature. And he says, as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And he goes on to say, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is exactly what he's been describing. If you don't believe the apostles, those who had authored, those who had given their lives, then just I appeal to Johnny Cash. Let Johnny Cash speak truth into you. If that's the base note language where we find ourselves, go home today. I Go home at some point. You need convincing. I'm not joking on this. Go home, find a YouTube video, and just listen to when the man comes around. Put on headphones, close your eyes, sit down in a posture of just, God, if you have any truth that you want to speak to me right now, through this servant of yours who's in glory right now, just let your, let your truth speak when a man comes around. It's the whole language that one day every human being will have to give an account of our life. Again, this is not a fear tactic. This is not some sort of psychological manipulative technique that oftentimes does get utilized, does get utilized. And if that has ever happened to you, I am so sorry. That's not going to happen here. But I do want to make very clearly the truth that New Testament authors throughout all history have stated very clearly. One point, we as human beings will stand before this God and have to give an account of this one life that we've been given. And my hope, my hope, as Peter describes it, we would be a community of people that live according to the way of grace. So what does it mean to step into that? It just simply means recognizing that God has loved you. He's forgiven you. He's given you everything. It's basically message from last week all over again, just recapitulated. It's like Jesus did something for us on our behalf. He conquered our greatest foe and the enemy through death, and he just invites us to trust him. That's, that's what it is. And then as we trust him, then we do what Paul will say next week. Again, don't miss next week where he says, arm yourself. Therefore, arm yourself and live in this way. So yes, there is a, there's an, there's an impact that comes to us from the gospel, but then there's an invitation for us to take upon ourselves the way of an apprentice of Jesus and to follow him. And maybe for some of us, we need to really think clearly about where we're at on that journey. And I'm done. Weird way to end a sermon. How about we all stand? I'm going to have Nick, Jill come on up. They're going to lead us in a closing song, just a closing hymn. And um, I just want to invite you, wherever you're at, to just think about, consider, what are some of those areas in your life that maybe Jesus is calling you either to follow him for the first time. Maybe you've not ever really given your life to Jesus. Maybe you've been brought up hearing various elements and aspects about who Jesus is, but for whatever reason, you've just not taken that plunge. You've not fully stepped in. I want to invite you to just trust Jesus. It looks like repentance and faith, just meaning turning from whatever myth or narrative or sin or proclivity or whatever it is or epithumia that we've given ourselves over to and saying, God, I want to turn now to you and follow your way. No matter how inconsistent or veiled your understanding of what that is, that's part of the journey, just like stepping into it. And we have some ushers and leaders and people that are off over to the side that would love to pray for you. I'm actually here. I'd love to pray for you as well, either right now or afterwards. But just don't miss a time right now to just respond. And if that's you, I want to pray for you. I'm going to pray right now. Nick and Joe will lead us in just a closing chorus, and then we will wrap it up. So Jesus, thank you for your great love. 
that you have demonstrated to us through Jesus. Thank you, God, that your word's really clear. In verse 6, it says, it's for this reason the gospel is preached. Uh, Lord, all of us, whether saint, sinner, walking light or darkness, whether in the way of grace or in the way of nature, we need the gospel. We need the good news. That in your eyes, you have taken upon our, your, uh, yourself all of our brokenness and sin and shame. So let's lift up our voice right now and sing to him. And no matter where you're at, maybe just call out to him. Any prayer, we have to pray for you. Let's respond.